So I'd ask that you take God's word in your hands and we begin a series that we are entitling Empty, that this changes everything. And today we're going to be talking about saying goodbye uh, to sorrow. And if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 18. Now, last week uh, we celebrated Easter. And uh, for many churches, Easter is the climax of, of all of the events in the church calendar. And yet, as a teaching team at our three different campuses, we made the decision that we wanted to focus in on passages of Scripture that many times go um, untouched after the Easter story. And how important it is for us to look at how Easter changed the lives of the people closest to that first celebration of the resurrection. And we want to look at how the celebration of Easter changed everything. In fact, it changed the world forever. In Time Magazine, in fact, uh, they celebrated uh, a couple years ago their 80th anniversary of being a periodical. And they dedicated an entire magazine to the 80 uh, most historic events within all of history. The events that changed history in the course of time. Stephen Kopp was given the job and the task of writing an article that would help highlight these 80 events in the 80th anniversary. And you got to say, what a tall order that would have been to try to put into words 80 days that would change the way we look at life, the way we look at the world around us. And I like how he starts the article. He says the following, while history usually takes decades and lifetimes to uphold, unfold, on certain days, the world seems to spin faster on its axis. It is on these days that everything seems to change. Well, I don't have time to give you all 80 of them. I want to highlight them and categorize them, these 80 events, the 80 events that changed history. And they involve a couple different things. First of all, before we go to the things that are seen in the newspapers and the events, we have to recognize that life-changing days happen to us personally every day. Whether it's good things like marriages and births and engagements and promotions at work, there are days in our life, and maybe you had one of those this week, where something took place and, and everything uh, in regarding your life will, will be changed. I saw on Facebook uh, this week that one of our own uh, members of our church just recently got into their first home. And, and what a life-changing day that is, a day that I remember getting the keys uh, to the home and beginning to move in and to, and to make a life in, in, in a city and to be a part of that. Others of you, of course, uh, probably watched uh, the royal wedding. And what a day for that couple. In fact, an entire nation that they will remember that day when uh, their prince and now their new princess uh, we're brought together in holy matrimony. I want you to also understand that with every day that good things happen, we must recognize that for us personally, there will be days where bad things will take place. It's hard for us to recognize that in, on the greatest days of our own lives, that somewhere in the world, someone is struggling with the worst of days, that someone is getting news of a death, the news of a lost job, the news of a broken relationship. And then in this, we need to recognize that while history changes in the world around us, it also changes in our world as well. In the Time Magazine article, he goes on and he says that technology has changed the way we look at time and history. He, he quotes things like the advent of electricity, cars and airplanes, televisions, computers, the internet, 
cell phones and all of the technological things that we have that have changed the way we look at life and look at the world around us. Technology has changed our world. He speaks of events of hostility, things like warring events, Pearl Harbor, D-Day, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and 9-11 were days where we would look at the world differently as a result of what was taking place on the battlefield. He speaks of days of tragedy, the stock market crash of 1929, earthquakes and hurricanes, tsunamis, the Challenger explosion, and I would even add the tornadoes of this past week in the South. Events of tragedy will change the course of history for us. How about times where equality have been brought forth? The bringing on and the advent of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Rosa Park not giving up her seat on the bus in the South. The march on Selma and, of course, the march on the mall uh, in, in Washington, D.C., the appointing of Thurgood Marshall as the first Supreme Court Justice, and I would add even Barack Obama as our first African-American president, days that we are reminded of the inequality that we've had in this world and days that changed it once and for all. We could also go on to days of victory, where we can highlight all kinds of victories on the military field as well as in athletics. These events, whether by tragedy or victory, whether bringing forth a greater movement of equality, all of them are events that have changed our lives. We've never been the same as a result of them. But those all pale in comparison to the event that changed the world spiritually. That event on that spring morning in Jerusalem where Jesus had been put into the grave and that Sunday that he was resurrected from the grave would change who we are for the rest of our lives. And unlike all of the other events that I've spoken about today, the events on that first Easter Sunday would change our eternity. They wouldn't just change what takes place here in the temporal world, but they will change all that we know and all that we're a part of because based on what we do with that first Easter will either send us to a place of great hostility towards God or a place of great tranquility with God. A day can change everything. It only takes what the songwriter says, a New York minute, that everything changes And it's true of Easter. It's amazing what the Easter story can do. I love the hymn writer who says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. That makes life worth the living just because he lives. But was that the hymn that the people around Jesus were singing that first Easter? We look and we'll be exploring four uh, people in the lives of Jesus who are changed by the resurrection. And we want to learn how we might be changed by that resurrection because he lives. But we'll notice in the narratives that we look at that the people weren't changed right away. That they struggled and they worked through the details of his death and his burial. And now we're coming to terms with his resurrection His rising from the grave would change everything. Has it changed everything for you? 
Now, the people that were surrounding Jesus that first Easter had seen their friend and their teacher. They had seen him in the greatest of days, people flocking around him, him healing people and and taking care of the needs of those around them. But in these last days, they had seen their friend and teacher beaten and abused, arrested and tried, flogged and crucified. And for many of them, in fact, I would say almost all of them, this day, that Friday, was a day that changed everything. Because the day that Jesus died, all their hopes of a new day, in a new world, with a new Lord, were gone. It was not to be. Friday would be a day of terrible change that left the followers of Christ bewildered, broken. Some even betrayed him. Many deserted him. And even his greatest follower, Peter, would deny him. And it seems for a couple days that there's an unhappy ending to a great run of ministry and engagement in the world. Yet on Resurrection Sunday, their mourning would turn to joy. One of the greatest proofs of the resurrection that I believe in is the idea of the changed life. Here the apostles and the writers of the Gospels who lived in those events don't sugarcoat what took place. We don't have, well, Jesus died and we knew that was going to happen. And then on that third day, just as Jesus said he was going to, he was raised from the dead. We knew it was coming. We knew that it was going to happen and we were confident. And so we just waited for the right time and the right place to meet Jesus just like he said he would. That's not the case. The closest followers of Jesus Christ, they ran for their lives. They were scared. They began to doubt that Jesus would ever come back, even though he had told them he would. They did not understand. And yet we see these broken and bewildered and deserting people, after seeing Jesus Christ, changed. And because of the change that takes place on Easter Sunday, they would change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it starts on that Easter Sunday with a woman named Mary. So let us go ahead and stand. I'm going to read from uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 uh, through 18. And uh, we'll get into our text then this morning. This is what it says in John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in, and the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? 
thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, or she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for Easter Sunday. We're not just thankful for it on the day that we celebrate and commemorate that glorious day of your resurrection, but we celebrate it each and every day as believers because it is there where mercy has found us. It is there where grace has been given the grace that we need to live each and every day for you. And now, Lord, I pray that that day would change us, that we would not just look at that event and say, well, I came to terms with that event a long time ago, but we would look at our lives today and see how we can live in light of the resurrection when it comes to our deepest and darkest sorrows that we face. Father, thank you for the example that you give us in the life of Mary a woman who uh, had a lot of issues and a lot of struggles, and yet you allowed her to be the first to meet your son and to be the first that would share your message to the world that he is risen just as he has said. Lord, give us that mandate to do the same in the world around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder what was going on in the head of Mary as she approached the tomb that first Sunday that day where she was going to go to the tomb and share spices uh, with her Savior and Lord to place on his body to pay her respects to a long-lost friend and now teacher and loved one. He's gone, I wonder if she was saying. I'm going to miss him. I'm not ready to let go. I wonder if these were the words that they were likely to hear not only on that morning as they were approaching the tomb, but that Saturday. I wonder if someone said the old adage, the good always die young. I wonder how many tears were shed. The broken hearts that were before each of them. The despair that they struggled with that ruled their day. What an emotion. Sorrow would be the emotion of that first Easter Sunday. Sorrow unending sorrow that would seem to have no end to it in sight. Sorrow that some of us are facing today. It has been defined, sorrow, that it is a feeling of deep distress. And who could blame them to have such an emotion? Their friend was gone. Their teacher, the one who had changed their life, was now gone. He had spoken of a new kingdom. He had spoken of a new way of life. And who could have ever seen coming the cross and all of the flogging and the death of their loved one? No wonder they felt such sorrow and such distress. There's a couple of things we need to remember about this issue of sorrow as we look at the life of Mary. I want you to write these somewhere in your outline uh, on the side there. We need to remember that sorrow is a fact of life. Jesus had reminded them, and he reminds us, that in this world we will have troubles. And as those troubles come into our lives, they will inevitably bring forth sorrow and pain. 
None of us will ever be exempt from having times of sorrow in our life. You may not have experienced them yet, but those times are coming. That brings us to the next characteristic about sorrow, and that is that sorrow comes on fast. Remember that just the Sunday before, Mary Magdalene had come into Jerusalem with the rest of the followers of Jesus Christ. And what did they come into? A town that was excited to see this rabbi and this teacher. A group of people who said, he's the Messiah. He is the one who comes because blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were a part of a great parade. They were a part of a great celebration as the city of Jerusalem receives the king that they had been awaiting. And yet in a matter of a couple days, everything changed. The hurrahs and the excitement and the celebration turned to jeers, to punches, to being spat upon, to being arrested. The public idea and thoughts of Jesus turned so quickly. And that's what happens in the life of our sorrow as well. On some random Tuesday, a phone call is brought to our attention or a note comes, or, or a conversation takes place, and the day that started out so sunny becomes so gloomy and so cloudy in such a quick amount of time. Some of you, I wish I could say that it's not true, will experience sorrow in this next year. You'll experience sorrow maybe this next month. Maybe in the next week, a word of sorrow will come to you. A tragedy will take place in your life. I pray it not be so, but some of you today will get home from church and sorrow will be meeting you at your doorstep. It comes on fast and it comes on with no warning at all. The final thing in regards to sorrow that we must remember is that sorrow can either be a friend or a foe. For some, sorrow leads to an open heart. It leads to an idea of a dependence on God. Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. I need you in my hour of greatest need. And it is there that when we approach sorrow in that way, that we will be blessed. But sadly, not everybody approaches sorrow like that. For all those who have an open heart to the sorrowful times in their life, many don't have an open heart but a clenched fist. And they shake that fist at God, and with all bitterness and anger and resentment, they say, God, how could you do this? I don't want to worship you, God. If this is what you're going to do, then I want nothing to do with it. And it's in that moment of great sorrow that we have an opportunity to either approach sorrow as a friend, as one thing that would help us in our character and in our endurance, to bring us into full maturity in Christ, or for us to turn our backs on God. You see, if we don't think about the Easter story like this, we miss out on all of the wonderful truths that come out of it. The Easter story is not a, a book or list of prepositional truths, do this, do that, but it is seen in the lives of people who are living life. It's messy. It sometimes doesn't make sense. It doesn't always seem to uh, put a nice tight bow around things. It doesn't show people at their best, but sometimes at their worst. And that's true for us when it comes to sorrow as well. And we need to approach sorrow knowing that God has a plan, God has a reason for it, and God wants us to respond in a certain way. And that's what we need to do. Now notice four things in our text. Four times 
in these 18 verses, we are told that Mary is crying. She's sorrowful. But the word crying doesn't paint the picture as, as grim as it is. Because she's just not crying. Literally, the Greek word there for crying or weeping is she's wailing. An uncontrolled uh, ex- exposure to her heart of what's going on inside. She's broken. She has nowhere to go, nowhere to turn to. Her life, in many ways, has ended with the death of her friend and teacher, Jesus Christ. And she's wailing in anguish. Oh, how she loved Jesus. But what were the reasons for her anguish? I want us to look at the first point this morning, and that is the reasons for sorrow. Why did Mary weep? And why do we weep in our times of great sorrow? There are many reasons why people are sorrowful, many reasons that we will see even in the life of his disciples. But for Mary, why was she at a place of sorrow? To be able to understand it, we have to look at her life. I want you to turn for a moment to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and it is here that we are introduced to this woman, Mary. Now, there's a lot of speculation on Mary and and who she is. Many believe that she's the woman uh, who was caught in, in adultery. Uh, in John chapter 8, where that's recorded. Others believe her uh, to be uh, a woman, of course, on the liberal end of things that had an infatuation with Jesus. And because of that infatuation with Jesus, Jesus would grow in his relationship. And of course, liberal theologians say that, that Jesus would marry one day Mary Magdalene and have children uh, with him. That's not true, of course. That has been personified in the writings of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and all that. And it's just not true. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that at all. She's a disciple of Jesus, one who loves Jesus so very much. Now notice what it says in Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from town, one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. Those are his twelve disciples. And also some women were with him. Uh, Some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, and the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. We meet Mary Magdalene, and what we need to understand is that Mary Magdalene, when she comes to the tomb, the emotion that comes out is sorrow because of, first of all, her life of difficulties because of the life of difficulties that she faced. The scripture tells us that Mary had, been, uh, had seven demons driven from her. We're not sure if that means the exact number of demons or if that's a number more figurative speaking of the total um, possession in her life of demon activity. Whatever it means, she had a difficult life. She had a life of, of demons tormenting her, consuming her. Right when she would want to move on with her life and and, and be done with these things once and for all, those demons would come back. Those issues in her life would come back. And she would never find wholeness or peace until one day she meets Jesus. And the day she meets Jesus, her life has changed. She's delivered from those demons. She's uh, set free once and for all from that bondage. And the joy that must have filled her heart, no matter what would take place, she wanted to follow Jesus because he had set her free. But now he was gone. And how would she know that the one who exercised those demons from her life, now being gone, would those demons come back? Who would be there to answer 
her questions, to help her in her hour of need. There was nobody left, and the life that she saw as she approached that tomb would be one of difficulty. There was no more Jesus. There was no more answer. And how was she going to get through her life without that Jesus now that he was gone? She saw difficulties because she no longer had her friend and her Savior. What about disappointment? Notice again in Luke 8, 1, that she's a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. It says that she was there as he went from town to town. And no matter what town they were a part of, it seems that Jesus seemed to have an impact, whether through his teaching or through uh, the opportunities where he would heal individuals or where he would feed people out of nothing. Jesus always seemed to be there at the right time and in the right place to take care of someone's need. He was the one that brought words of life, and she was a follower of his. But now he was gone. All that she had invested in the last couple years following this rabbi, following this teacher, and he was gone. How would she go back to the life that she was a part of? How would she look her her family and her friends in the eye when she had left all that she had and to follow Jesus and to support Jesus? How would she go back and say, you know, I guess I was wrong. He seemed to have everything going for him, and then everything fell apart when we got to Jerusalem. The life I thought I was going to have, it isn't to be. It isn't going to take place. As she approaches that tomb, I wonder if disappointment was a part of her thinking. All of the hype of a new kingdom, of God ushering in a world of peace, now the only peace that there was was Jesus who was dead with no kingdom, just a corpse in a tomb, and just a world of disappointment. Notice there was probably despair. There was despair. So you have difficulties, disappointment, and despair. And within the despair, we have to understand that Mary's heart had grown to love Jesus. He was the answer to all of her concerns, all of her needs. He had the words of eternal life. He was the one who brought peace. He was the one that would show her all that she needed to know to live a godly life that she had desired to live. And yet, she had followed a man with a dream that now was dead. Where would she turn now? Where would she go? What would she do with the rest of her life? As a woman, uh, where would her protection be found? Who would she turn to? What was she to do? Despair must have been a part of that time as well. And finally, we know death. As she approached that tomb, she began to embrace and began to breathe in the fragrance of the cemetery, the feelings of death. Above all, the worries of her own difficulties and disappointments and despair, she had to come to realize realize the idea that the person that she loved and had followed now was dead. Just right when she was beginning to understand his life and what he taught and what he was all a part of, he was now gone. And the grief of losing someone so close, what was she to do now? How was she to get beyond it? Some of you right now are living in that time of sorrow. Maybe it's because of difficulties in your life where you say, enough is enough already. I I can't keep doing it. I can't keep living this way. And you find yourself at a place of tears. Mary was there. Some of you because of disappointments. 
Whether you've been overlooked for a job or, or whether children haven't lived up to what you hoped they would have. Or maybe your marriage isn't where you wanted it to be and the dreams that you had have come crumbling down. Mary was there. Some of you find yourself in a place of deep despair. There's no money in the bank account. Depression and and all kinds of anguish in your thoughts and thinking are filling your heart and mind with all kinds of what-ifs. Where do I go and what do I do? Where is the answer to be found? Mary was there. And because death is the great equalizer, all of us at one point or another will have to face that of losing a loved one or a friend. Where are we to turn in this time of sorrow? I want you to look at the second point this morning, and that is the road that leads to our joy. Once we recognize the place that sorrow has in, its, in our lives, we have to look at the road that gets us out of sorrow. Nobody wants to stay in a place of sorrow. Nobody ever wants to sit there and say, wow, oh, it's great to be here. I've lost everything. All hope for tomorrow is gone, but it's good to be here. No one thinks that way. So how do we get out of it? Notice what Mary does. The text tells us that Mary goes to the tomb. She goes to the tomb and she finds herself busy in the activities of serving God and serving Jesus Christ. I want you to notice a couple things about the road. First of all, this road will be different for each and every person. As we look at John chapter 20 and 21 during these four weeks, we're going to see different people. And they're going to respond differently to the death of Jesus Christ. They will respond differently to the news of the resurrection. That's what sorrow does in the life of people. I remember when my brother passed away, my mom right away began the grieving process. I remember my brother right away beginning the grieving process. But my dad and I, we waited a while, and and mine happened later that fall, and maybe a month or two later where it began to really sink in. But for my dad, my dad was a a rock during that time. Man, nothing, I, I didn't see him cry, he praised God, and then Christmas came. And there was something about that holiday. Now, four months after my brother's passing, and my dad began to fall apart, He began to really struggle. I remember he canceled Christmas. He walked in one day and he said, Christmas is canceled. I said, I don't think you can do that, Dad. But we all grieve differently. And we see that in the life of the disciples and in the life of the people around Jesus. They grieve differently. Again, this is a wonderful reminder that this is real life. This is happening. If it was fake, they would have said, yeah, we all just, we knew it was coming. We're sitting in the room and we're waiting. No, each of them responded differently. Notice even in verses 6 through 8 of our text this morning that there are two different responses when it comes to Peter and John. They respond differently. One looks in, while one other one looks and he perceives and, and he believes. They respond differently. And all of us will respond differently to those times of sorrow Notice the next thing that we see, that these times of sorrow in our lives will be filled with great darkness, and that road is no different. Our text tells us in verse 1 of John 20 that it was on the first day of the week, it was Sunday, and it was still dark. Now we know that in the physical realm that it was dark, it was still before dawn. She had gotten up very early that morning to go and to take care of the body of Christ. But there's something greater that we need to recognize, and that is emotionally and spiritually, it was dark for Mary as well. 
She had no idea what she was going to be a part of. Little did she know that she was going to meet that Jesus that she thought was dead. She was going to prepare the body for its final uh, place and state. And yet here Jesus had another plan. And here she is so totally oblivious to what God is going to do in her life. Notice what it says in the text. She's oblivious that she's even talking with, uh, with angels. It says in verse 12, as she wept, she bent over uh, to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now notice, there's no fear with her. There's no real response. She just asks the question, or answers the question. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. She's oblivious that she's talking with angels. She's oblivious when she first starts talking to Jesus. She thinks Jesus is the gardener. Now, we're not sure if Jesus had somehow made his uh, looks different. We don't know if because of her tears, she was unable to really see who Jesus was. But she's oblivious. And so many times in our places of sorrow, in our places of loss, we're oblivious to what God is doing in our lives. We don't see it taking place. Because sorrow has a way to do that. C.S. Lewis says, it is hard for us to see when our eyes are filled with tears. Some of you are walking in that oblivion today. Your hearts have been so broken. You're filled with misery. And there's no place to turn because you're oblivious to the person standing right before you, Jesus Christ. Notice it calls for great devotion. In Mary's hour of sorrow, what is she found doing? She's serving her Lord and Savior. She brings him spices. She'd endured this great loss, but she had not forgotten what she was called to do. In Luke 8, 3, it says that they were supporters of the ministry through their own means. What it meant was whatever they had, they gave so that the ministry of Jesus would move forward. And we believe that to be true even here and now. Mary served Jesus And you know what happens many times in our sorrow? We begin to look to ourselves and the service of our own lives instead of to the lives of others, especially that of Jesus Christ. And Mary shows us that the road to get out of sorrow and into joy is a road that leads to Jesus and serving him. She never stops serving. Now this is different than any of the disciples. The disciples are held up in a room behind locked door and and they're fearful for their lives. And and when they do come to see Jesus, they come and they look and then they go home. But, But Mary, she stays and she serves. And what great devotion there is that her sorrow brought her to a place to serve. Notice it can lead to a great discovery. Even though she's filled with sorrow, It says in verse 16 that Jesus speaks to her. Mary, she turns toward him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Here is Jesus. The answer to her sorrow. She never went in thinking that Jesus would ever be able to answer this. In fact, she was probably saying her goodbyes instead of her hellos. And it's here in this moment that Jesus meets her. And for some of you this morning, struggles that are running on rampant in your life, you need to look for Jesus. And there's a couple things that I want us to walk away from this morning. 
And that is our response. Notice the response that we see in this. Because Mary responds in the right way. In a way that we need to respond. As she meets Jesus in her time of sorrow. As she looks at his hands and feet. As she takes in Jesus. She does a couple things that we need to be aware of as well. In our response to times of trouble and pain. First of all, we need to remember when those times of sorrow come that we need to get as close to Jesus as we can. We need to get as close to Jesus as we can. If you want to understand anything from this text, and there's a lot, and I'm limited on time to be able to break all these things down, but if there's anything you get, when you get close to Jesus, great things will happen. Jesus says that, or I'm sorry, James tells us that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Why did Jesus meet Mary at the grave? Why not the disciples first? I believe with all my heart because she went looking for him. Had Peter been the one gone looking for him, he would have met Jesus. Had it been John, they would have met Jesus. But it was Mary who was longing to find out where he was. Remember, They didn't know where his body was. Had grave robbers taken it? Had the gardener taken it? Had these two angels that were sitting there taken it? They didn't know. Mary said, it's not enough just to walk away and wonder. I'm going to go and find out. And she went on a careful search looking for the body of Jesus. And in looking for Jesus, she found more than she ever thought she would. She met the risen Christ. Brothers and sisters, in times of plenty and in times of want, our job is to get as close to Jesus as possible. Fernando Ortega sings a song, Give Me Jesus. And he says this in the words. He says, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I'm alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Sadly, in our world today, we are a group of Christians who find ourselves not very committed, who find ourselves not very set apart for the relationship that we are to have with Christ Jesus. And so the last thing we think about is giving me Jesus. We come and and our day is so filled with activities and all kinds of things that Jesus is is one part. And and let's move on with Jesus. We've, We've done our part, Jesus. Now let's get on to the good stuff. And how sad that is for us, and I put myself there as well, as followers of Jesus Christ, that we would not say that Jesus is preeminent to all that we're a part of. Everything that we do, everything that we spend our time on, every dime that we spend funnels through, how can I get myself closer to Jesus? That's the story of the risen Lord. The opportunity to see him and draw near to him. Because he was about to ascend to the Father and he was giving us the opportunity. And we'll talk about this in a moment, but given the opportunity not to hold on to a man who had limitations in in where he could go and and what he could do, if you will, uh, in a human body. But he was about to ascend to the Father and he was about to send his spirit down so that you and I can get as close to Jesus as if we were meeting him face to face as Mary did. And so the same relationship that Mary had, we have that opportunity because Jesus lives in inside us through the work of his Holy Spirit. 
He intercedes for us. He allows us to have fellowship with him as well as the Father in heaven. And the question is this morning, are you looking for him? Are you seeking him out? Are you getting as close as you can to him? Or are the things of this world causing you to miss out on Jesus? Get as close to him as you can. Second thing we need to do in our response is to grab on to the right thing. Verses 16 and 17 tells us that she turns, she sees him and cries out, Rabboni, and Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Now, there's a lot of speculation on this. Our small group talked about the different ways this passage can be rendered. And I think the most important thing that we need to pull from this text, while there's a lot of theological arguments and thoughts and discussions that can take place, is the thought and understanding that Jesus did not want her to hold on to him. Now, some of your translations may say touch, and that's not a good translation. The Greek there literally means she clung to him. If you've ever had a child that, uh, that has gotten frightened, uh, uh, Luke is, is my clinger, and, uh, and he will come and he will grab a hold of my leg and he will not let go. And so then I just kind of go with an extra 30 pounds and just kind of walk and swing the leg, and he just kind of hangs on. That's what Mary's doing. She won't let go. And you say, that's a marvelous thing. That's a wonderful thing. Why would Jesus get, uh, tell her to stop such a thing? Isn't that the same thing that Jesus allowed Thomas to do? What's the difference? The difference is Thomas was able to touch the finger, or the, put his finger in the hands and, and into the side of Jesus. And it was to represent that I am who I say I am. But Mary wanted to hold on to Jesus, the human Jesus. She wanted to hold on to the things the way they used to be, not the way things were soon going to be. And sorrow does that to us. Sorrow many times holds us and and it forces us to cling to things in this world instead of clinging to that which we're supposed to. To hold on to things for our peace and our joy instead of giving our lives to God and saying, God, I know you've got a plan and I know it's different than what I thought it was going to be. And so I release my life into your plan. What Mary was doing was saying, I'm not going to let you go because the last time I let you go, you were gone. And I don't ever want to lose you again. And Jesus says, hey, you can't hold on to the way things used to be because there's a new day dawning. I'm going to send my spirit. He's going to empower you. He's going to change the world in far greater ways than I was able to here in Palestine because he will change the world and all of history because of my message. And he'll do it through you. We need to make sure that when we're grabbing for the right things, and it may even be good and noble things, that we grab on to Jesus. The psalmist says he's our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Grab on to him. Turn to him. Give your struggles to him. And then do what he says. Notice what the text says. She's given a job to go tell others of his grace. Verses 17 and 18 says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them as he, as he had said these things to her. Let me close with these thoughts. What you see in Mary's life is our calling 
as Christians. In her greatest hour of need, Mary is comforted by the risen Savior and King. And likewise, when we approach Jesus and we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are comforted from our greatest times of trial and tribulation because our sin is paid for. Our sin is atoned for because of Jesus and the work of the cross. What are we to do with that? Are we just to walk away and keep it to ourselves? No, Jesus, just as he did with Mary, says, when we have been comforted, when our sins have been paid for, the natural response is to tell others. And that's what Mary does. I love what 2 Corinthians, hopefully you haven't closed your Bibles yet, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us something that we must always be reminded of. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. He comforted Mary in her time of trouble, in her time of sorrow. But notice what she was then to do, what the apostle tells us we are to do. He comforts us in all our troubles. In verse 4 it says, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. I want you to look at evangelism in a new way, through the eyes of Mary. Many of us think that we have to be able to give an apologetic, begin to debate why we believe in Jesus, why we need to tell others about Jesus. And I'll tell you this, evangelism is as simple as what Mary did. I went to the tomb, I was broken, I was depressed, I was filled with despair and bewilderment, I was full of sorrow, and that was my life before I met the risen Christ. And then I met Jesus. And Jesus took away the sorrow, Jesus took away the pain, Jesus took away the despair, Jesus changed everything in my life. And now I just want to tell you about it. Evangelism has been quoted as being uh, the process where one beggar tells another beggar where to find bread. Folks, we don't have to be theologians to share the good news of Jesus Christ. All we need to be able to say is, I was broken, beaten, full of sin, and heading to death, and I met Jesus, and he changed everything. And who might be your disciples this week that you need to declare that truth to? Who in your family and in your friendships and in your schools and your workplaces can you sit down with someone and without berating them, without questioning them, saying, can I just tell you about what Jesus has done in my life? I've seen Jesus. I've beheld the glory of the one and only. And he's changed my life. And I think it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. And I want him to have the opportunity, you to have the opportunity for him to change it for you as well. Mary goes from sorrow to a spokesperson. Charles Spurgeon says of this text that Mary becomes the apostle to the apostles. She's the one who shares the good news. And what great news, what good news of great joy it is. It is the same good news of great joy that you and I have. It is when we are reminded of the reasons and we walk down the road that leads to joy and we respond in our times of sorrow as Mary did, that we can begin 
to see the process of our sorrow being stopped once and for all, that we can say goodbye. And that is why Paul says we do not grieve like the rest of the world does who have no hope, but we have a hope, and that hope is found in the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In your times of difficulty, in your times of pain, get as close to Jesus as possible, and you will find out that to be true. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for this truth. This truth that reminds us that the people of these texts were real people with real struggles and real pains. And Father, we thank you for the life of Mary. She was a woman with a past, and she was a woman that met you. And Lord, while she knew you as a teacher and as a friend and as a great master, she did not know you as her Lord and Savior in a real way until she saw you in front of that tomb. And Lord, I pray for any today who have never approached you and seen you in front of that tomb, that they would give their lives to you. That all of the troubles and all of the pains would then be able to be transferred to you And while we're not guaranteed that our life will be perfect or our life will even be happy, Lord, we recognize that with you, we have one that we can turn to. With you, we have one who can help us in our hour of need. In you, we find one who gives us the truth to understand why times of sorrow come. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this place, and I pray they would live in light of this truth. They would live in light of the resurrection. They would live in light of the opportunity that we have to share the good news that Jesus changes everything. Lord, let that be the case. Wherever we go, whomever we run into, that we, just like Mary, would share the good news of Easter in the week before us. Send us now from this place, Lord, changed a little bit more, knowing now a little bit more than we did before about how we are to live like you. Give us the Spirit's power to be able to do it. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.